If you're going to run a great business, you've got to have great people, and finding them is a huge part of that puzzle. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter.com has a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. It identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. You can find them, but ZipRecruiter is how. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time, try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire. Once you check out their interface and you see those candidates come right into your inbox, you're going to realize it's a great choice. ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. You are entering the Freedom Hut. The deep state is running out of excuses for the Department of Justice. Are we finally going to get the answers we need about spying on the Trump campaign and what some of those Obama administration holdovers were really plotting all along? Plus, the North Korea summit, they're saying it's in jeopardy, but are they just trying to root for failure here and a follow-up to Starbucks deciding that all of its various locations will be turned into the equivalent of a public restroom and a bathroom. Uh, we'll talk more about that coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Team Buck. What is going on? What a day, what a day. Great to have you here with me. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure, as always. It has been uh, been quite a week. We are, we are seeing more and more very interesting things come together here. Uh, after so many months of coverage and discussion over just what the deep state was up to with regard to Trump. They're running out of room to maneuver. I think they're running out of delay tactics, and I think they're also running out of lies. That's going to be very difficult for them because there's really not that much more that they can come up with to try to prevent us from finding out the truth. Increasingly, it seems, I think, an inescapable conclusion Meaning that you, you could not look at this with an honest mind. You could not look at this as a person of integrity and come away thinking anything other than, wow, there were very senior bureaucrats. That's what we're talking about here. Bureaucrats in the federal government who took it upon themselves to bail out Hillary and stop Trump at all costs. That's it. This should not be nearly as controversial an opinion at this point as it seems to be, considering that I think in the last election you had 95% of civil service donations, the federal government, went to Hillary or went, or went to a Democrat at least, Hillary or Bernie. 
This is college campus level ideological infiltration and control. Once you start to see the federal government through that lens of, wow, you mean that most of the bureaucrats who work in the federal government are, in fact, pro-Hillary, pro doesn't mean all, and I'm basing this on donations to the campaigns, everything, this is not foolproof, but there's clearly a problem. There is clearly a, a tendency among these bureaucrats to go for the party of the state. Remember, the Democrat Party is the party of the state. So if you are working for the state in a big S sense, if you are a statist ideologically, it stands to reason that you would want to support the political party that believes in enlarging the state, giving it more authority, allowing it to take more of people's tax dollars, more of their stuff, and bind them with further regulations on everything all the time. Right? That the, the solution to everything is government. The answer to everything has to be a government regulation, mandate, or law. So it's not surprising when you start to extrapolate, when you start to think this through. There are so many people that work for the government that are really all about Hillary. And that she is, in fact, their preferred candidate, and that's the way that this went. And at the very highest levels, you had former Obama administration officials who were quite involved in all of this. We now know that there was an actual human spy leveled against the Trump administration. I mean, that's been out there for a few days, but it's increasingly clear. Oh, but but don't think that the Democrats were going to come clean on this until they absolutely had to, right? You get Adam Schiff, you know him? He goes on TV to just say whatever the MSNBC watching crowd wants him to say. Here's a little bit of a flashback to before we could without any real doubt, say that there was some human intelligence operation being run by the U.S. federal government against a presidential campaign. Here's what Schiff was saying about it. Play the clip, too. This claim by the president, the suggestion by Giuliani that there is a political spy embedded in the Trump campaign is right. nonsense. Uh, and you hear it in the same terms that Trump often speaks, which is people are saying or I'm hearing or we're being told. That's another way of saying this is patently untrue, but we would like to spread it anyway. Uh, and it's singularly destructive of our institutions. But then that's the point. These people don't care about our institutions as a means of supporting principles of limited government, separation of powers, the Constitution. They care about the stranglehold on the levers of power in the federal government in these institutions that the Democrat Party has. That's what they care. And they want to maintain that power. They don't want to relinquish their grip on the levers of control. What do we make now of people like Schiff? He's what, on the uh, House Intelligence Committee? He, he's supposed to know stuff. So is he just out there lying? Remember, whether it's Schiff or Clapper or Brennan, there are a lot of these guys, Comey, who have decided to make a lot of public pronouncements about this that have turned out to be false. Whether knowingly or not, we could dive into the specifics. But they also could just be professionals. They could just be quiet. You know, I promise you, you will never see General Jim Mattis in the months after he leaves as Secretary of Defense, whether it's in a year or in six. 
going after the sitting president of the United States, suggesting the sitting president of the United States is somehow a traitor, is untrustworthy, is, is a criminal. You know how I know that? Because the Secretary of Defense is a warrior, an honorable man, and a professional. But what does that tell us about some of these Obama acolytes who are, are acting like they've just been aspiring CNN pundits for you know their whole lives, and now finally they get the big job, right? Forget about being the director of national intelligence like Clapper. Forget about being the CIA director like Brennan or the FBI director like Comey. The job they really want is to be patted gently on the head by Anderson Cooper. Is to get an attaboy from Jake Tapper. Uh, this is, you want to talk about institutions. This is destroying, I mean, CIA institution I used to work for. This is destroying these institutions. They are within the executive branch. Another thing we have to talk about here. They are within the executive branch. Does every president now have to assume that if there's anyone who was appointed by his predecessor from the other party, that he or she, as a sitting president, may be subjected to the Trump effect, where anything goes, leaks, criminal leaks, you know, as long as it hurts the sitting president, people will do it? Brennan, Comey, Clapper, they have a a responsibility, a higher responsibility than just getting a lot of retweets from left-wing activists and the mainstream media. They have a higher responsibility than being revered heroes of the hashtag resistance. By the way, you know who another revered hero of the hashtag resistance was? Schneiderman from New York State. How did that go for you, Samantha B. and company? You know, Schneiderman as hero. Maybe people need to slow their roll a little bit, not buy into the nonsense surrounding some of these self-serving, glorified bureaucrats, which is what we are often dealing with here. So, with all of that said, now we now we see that the Department of Justice, despite all the uh, editorials and all the stuff that's being said, is in fact under the care and oversight the authority and oversight of the executive branch and Congress. I was seeing all this stuff, you know, from Feinstein and Brennan and all the independence of the New York Times, Washington Post, the independence of the DOJ is is at at stake here. How so? Trump wanted to have a meeting yesterday. Christopher Wray was there, FBI director. uh, Rosenstein, the deputy, by the way, you know, it's really a shame that not only the you have a special counsel, but it's a shame that you had Jeff Sessions, Attorney General. You know, you know, I like him. We appreciate when Jeff calls in, but it's a shame that he recused himself. I know you can say Buck, it was the ethical thing to do, but under the circumstances, I think the ethics were a lot more complicated than allow the Democrats to run a get Trump at all cost campaign via the DOJ and use the special counsel's authority, special counsel's tools. To uh, get after Trump and all the rest of them. And by the way, I'm seeing this here. It just broke, actually, I think, while I'm on air. Um, Michael Cohen's business partner, Evgeny Friedman, agrees to cooperate as part of a plea deal. This is all courtesy of CNBC. So Friedman is uh, Cohen's business partner. 
he's agreed to cooperate with federal and state prosecutors. Cohen is under criminal investigation. So I'm trying to see if, uh, you know, this is about maybe the taxi stuff. We're not really sure. Friedman was arrested last June on charges that he and another business partner stole more than $5 million in state surcharges that are imposed on taxi rides in New York City. Uh, but the amount of taxes he pleaded guilty to evading was much less than that, just $50,000. So they must think that they've got him on something against Cohen. Here's what I see happening. Here's how I see this playing out. They're, they're going to bring charges against Cho, uh, Cohen, most likely. And they're going to have nothing to do with Russia collusion, once again. They're just going to get Cohen on something. And they're going to turn around and just say, see, he's a criminal. See, he broke the law. Trump, where there's smoke, there's fire. All these bad people. And then those of us who are looking at this with clearer eyes will say, well, hold on a second. Once again, you have a massive prosecutorial operation that is looking for people to convict that has near unlimited investigatory power. If you've been in contact with Donald Trump in the last 10 years, you could all of a sudden find yourself, or his campaign, find yourself in, in the crosshairs of this investigation. And they're racking up prosecution after prosecution for non-Russia collusion-related crimes, for, for generally speaking, very Mickey Mouse low-level crimes, you know, lying about a meeting or lying about a phone call or something. And you cannot help but see this and compare it to the treatment that Hillary Clinton and her cronies got from this, not just the same Department of Justice, but the same people in the DOJ. So if people want to play the Michael Cohen's a criminal, therefore look at Trump, he has criminals around him, he must be a criminal too. I just want to say Hillary's, was, Hillary's a criminal, and not just because of the emails, folks. There are a lot of different ways I could have brought charges against Hillary. The emails were just, you know, this is the equivalent of Hillary Clinton getting caught with, uh, you know, a, a big bag full of drugs somewhere. And they're like, well, you know, they're not. She, she didn't really. Yeah, she had the bag, but it wasn't really her bag, you know, because somehow somebody else had possession or something. I mean, it's, they're just refusing to enforce the law. So this is why they're they're going to see the Cohen prosecution as, oh, it proves everything we're saying is so dirty. And you and I are going to look at this and say. What what are we even talking about here? Taxi cab. Uh, tax issues? Who the heck cares? What does this have to do with you or me? And by the way, anyone who knows anything about prosecutors and their powers and their ability, especially at the federal level, knows if they want to get you, they can get you. It is very unusual for somebody who has complicated business relationships and business dealings to not be at least somewhat vulnerable just on the tax issue. If they want to make an example of you, I know I have a friend who was a federal prosecutor for years and years and then was in private practice. And he told me a story about a friend of his who was facing three years in federal prison for essentially a tax shelter that not only did he think was legal, but that he had legal opinions telling him were completely legal. And a federal prosecutor goes, well, he's some rich guy. We're going to make an example of him. Sorry. We read the statute another way. Yeah. That's the reality of what Mueller 
and the rest of his team have at their disposal. And so that's why the fact that they're going to jam up Cohen doesn't really mean anything other than they're going to ruin this guy's life if they can. That's what they're going to do. Unless, of course, well, I was going to say Trump pardons him, but that's, ah, that's why they're getting the state prosecutors involved here. That's an, that's an interesting addition here. They're intentionally making sure that they're trying to, because sometimes there's a gray area between a federal case and a state case. They're going to make sure they have some of this stuff ready to go at the state level so they can hit him with charges the president can't pardon him for. You watch. You watch. That's coming. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We have so much more. Team, stay with me. This is a multi-year effort that has two different fronts, and people need to always remember that. One front was protecting, propping up, covering up for Bill and Hillary Clinton. The other front, as, as Trump became more and more serious, the other front was to stop Trump at any cost. Now, I believe that the reason you see people like Sally Yates go berserk, you see John Brennan go berserk, you see General Clapper go berserk, they're all guilty. When you see somebody in the Obama team who gets that rattled and is that angry, what you know is they're scared to death that they're going to get drawn into all this and their role is going to come out and it will involve, I think, felonies. And frankly, I suspect it reaches to the President Obama. We've seen the less they come up with, the more they investigate instead of the opposite. And there doesn't seem to be a real concrete intelligence origin for this investigation. And without a foundation, one wonders, what did we spend an entire year on? What did we disrupt everyone who was in the campaign, everyone who was in the administration? And I think this thing is just plain wrong and it's got to be ended and stopped. Let's throw the dirt in there, too, while we're at it. Play clip one. This was a legitimate investigation. You don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean you, you, you have no evidence that it wasn't. Let's find um, out. There was ample evidence of collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. Now what you're saying is there was already evidence of collusion, so it was legitimate to put on an informer in the FBI. I want to know what the evidence was. No well, the- judge has found probable cause. I think the American public has to be assured that there was a basis. It's not enough for Jeffrey Tubin to say there was collusion already at that time. I want to know what the facts were that justify that. They want to hide the facts. They want to hide this. I wrote about this today on TheHill.com. They, they very clearly are trying to be in control of who has access to the information that they then will turn around and tell us, oh, the stuff that we can't show you is what our justification is for spying on a presidential campaign. Folks, we're talking about now going on two years ago. What are they holding on to this stuff for? They're keeping this behind closed doors for sources and methods? It's a lie. That's a lie. Classification is often used by those in government who want to keep what they've done out of public view. It's just the truth. It's not supposed to be the case, but it often is. On any politically sensitive matter, it is a huge temptation for the state. And that's what we see happening here. Uh, I'm completely and utterly exasperated with all of this. Oh, the DOJ doesn't have to, doesn't, shouldn't have to give over this information because, because what? They don't want to? I'm sorry. Just because it may embarrass Comey, Rosenstein, Yates, Brennan, Clapper, whomever doesn't mean that the American people don't have a right to it. In fact, we have an even bigger right to it.
holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. It's inconceivable that President Obama could have had this many things going on and not known it because his administration was very controlling and very tight. And I think we're going to discover all the stuff in the end ends up at the Obama White House and has the president and his senior staff's fingerprints all over it. It's rapidly becoming the biggest and the most sobering uh, political scandal in American history. Got to agree with Newt on that one. At least on the Obama component of all this stuff. We're going to find out that Obama was way more involved in this than anybody up to this point has been willing to say much out loud or than we've been able to prove, but it certainly seems likely that Obama is very involved. In fact, it seems like it would be impossible for him not to be. Remember, Brennan was very tight with Obama before he was CIA director. He was uh, Obama's counterterrorism czar. I don't like that term, right? Obama's counterterrorism advisor at the White House. Uh, the people that we've seen that are very much involved in either the Hillary email investigation or the Trump-Russia collusion debacle, people with ties to the Obama White House and ties to Obama himself, there's just no way. And we've seen some reporting on this. You know, They can only shape the narrative so much. There's been some reporting that shows, oh, This was being run through the White House. That's what Peter Strzok said in one of his text messages, the FBI agent, uh, when he was talking to his mistress, Lisa Page, right? It's being run into the White House. Hmm. I wish I had it with me. I don't right now, but there's a a whole analysis of how some of the recent New York Times pieces and all the Russia collusion stuff are, in fact, riddled with errors, just riddled with them. Errors all over the place. Uh, And the kind of errors that are intentional, right? Making it seem like, Struck was suggesting there would be no leaks when, in fact, the context of what he was writing to Page showed that he was very worried about leaks or that he expected leaks about what they were doing looking at the at the Trump campaign. This is all obviously very, very political. And it's it's amazing when you think about how Democrats have chosen to fight on the battleground of Russia collusion and, and the propaganda that surrounds it instead of making this an issue, making this about the, I mean, the issues. It sounds like I'm, you know, running for local dog catcher. This should be the issues, but running on policies that oppose Trump. They're really not concerned, particularly with non Trump policies. Very hard for them to say much about the economy because the economy is better now than when Obama was in office. Full stop. Very hard for them to say that the world's ending because it hasn't ended. We'll talk about North Korea and the summit. And, you know, people are having so much fun analyzing something that hasn't even happened yet. You know, this is turning into like the five-hour pregame analysis show before some of these football uh, football games you see, where you're just like, okay, there's only so many ways you can talk about the the game before we just need to see what happens in the game. I think we're entering that territory with some of what's going on here on North Korea, but I'll get to that in the next hour. Uh, This is, I mean, does anyone really think at this point we're not going to find out that there were very senior Obama figures who were well aware of what they were doing and were working against 
working against the, the Trump campaign and using their government positions to get there. I, I think it's just beyond obvious. Uh, Joe DiGenova goes specifically after Yates, Brennan, and Comey. You guys all know this. I've been saying Yates for a long time. Because what she did with the, you know, her role in the whole Logan Act, General Flynn ambush, and, you know, she has been a partisan hit woman against Trump's people from the get-go. And the whole, oh, I'm not going to enforce the uh, travel ban on select Muslim states, even though she was the acting attorney general, as she was an Obama partisan. I'm, you're gonna, there's more from her, I'm telling you. She's not just angling for a CNN contributorship. She's actually, she is hashtag resistance through and through. But uh, DiGenova sees this in very similar terms to me. Play six. You watch someone like Sally Yates complain about the rule of law when she and Brennan and Comey and others destroyed the rule of law. It is going to take a decade to rebuild the public trust in the FBI and the Department of Justice. The disgraceful performance of her and, of course, even more disgraceful, John Brennan, who led a conspiracy against the campaign of the opposing party's presidential nominee, and then when he won, did everything they could to frame him and his compatriots with false crimes. It is the greatest political scandal in American history, and shame on Sally Yates, and shame on John Brennan. Very important. The, I, I think his whole rant there was spot on but very important uh, point that he raises. You know, it's one thing to play dirty, right? It's not good, not okay. It's one thing to play dirty. It's, it's an even worse thing, though, to, as part of your dirty tricks, try to make it seem like somebody else is the bad guy, right? You know, if, if you want to, like, you know, break into the bank, that's bad, but that's on you. If you're going to break in the bank and you're going to pin it on somebody else, it's even worse. And what we're seeing from those senior Obama figures, and we should think of them in that context. These are people that they're coming in, coming in and out of the White House all the time. They're briefing President Obama. What? Let me ask you this question, too. And I know we're bouncing around some things, but there's so much to cover here. There's so much to sink our teeth into. What issue in the summer of 2016 going into that election mere months from Obama's lame duck status, what national security issue could have been more front of mind for Obama's national security team than this effort that they're conjuring up of Russia and Trump and all this? You're going to tell me that they they weren't bringing this to Obama's attention? I'll also tell you that if they were ever doing any of that in the context of a, a PDB briefing, for example, a, a president's daily briefing, you're, you're never going to find out about that. No court will ever, no court will ever force them to disclose it. They're going to, they are ironclad with, so, so there is already a channel built in for Obama's top Intel people to fill him in on all of this. And there is an absolute 0% chance of that being disclosed unless somebody in the meeting decided to do that, and they would actually be breaking the law. 
Notice how Comey and CNN and McCabe, you know, they'll all talk about what they're briefing the briefing President Trump on. There'll be some discussion about CNN needs a news hook, right? We've also seen that. But there is a there is an ironclad channel for covert communication between Obama's top intel officials and then sitting President Obama that could have I'm not saying it did. I don't know. I wasn't in the room and we have no way of finding out. But just understand that it was wide open there. So this idea that Obama wasn't informed of what was going on here, it's just not plausible. It's just not plausible. Remember when DNI uh, Clapper a while ago goes, this should happen, I would have known about it. I can deny it. You know, remember that whole thing? Not the best Clapper impression, but, you know, close enough. And uh, this is something that the president absolutely would have known about. Okay, but one other thing here. I've been discussing this with you for the, for the last few weeks, and we're seeing it come to fruition. And that is they are losing ground. They're... They're losing the patience of the American people. I, I can't speak to the crazy 20% who just, you know, they, they think that uh, any day now that Trump is going to get frog marched out of the White House and he's like Putin's best friend. And I, I, I can't speak to crazy. Or at least I won't speak to crazy right now. Sorry, crazy. What are you doing? Um, can't do it. Can't do it. Uh. But I do know that for most Americans who are paying attention or trying to be honest about what's going on here, they are losing patience with all of the shenanigans and the mistruths, the half-truths, the, the false explanations, and just, just all of this when it comes to this whole investigation around Trump. I mean, if they don't have something now... Are we really supposed to believe they're, they're going to find some bombshell in the next few months? They've already gone through the financial records. They're interviewing everybody. Why, we all know they want an interview of Trump so badly so they can force a perjury trap and then create a constitutional crisis of can we, can we bring charges against the president for perjury that he should not have been subjected to in the first place by a subordinate government official in a subordinate agency, which is what the special counsel is. Is, is this... You know, is this what we think is really supposed to happen or this is good for the country? But they're losing ground. They're losing momentum. They know that. And that's why you have people like Lawrence Tribe, who, by the way, is he's a professor at Harvard Law School. Every time I see this guy's name pop up and I see his analysis or I hear him speaking, I'm like, well, that's just wrong. It's not even that he strikes me as incorrect so much as just sloppy. Like, like he can't really believe this. Uh, he's a rank partisan. No question about that. But. He understands that they've got to move fast on going on offense. Democrats have to get on offense against Trump soon because they are losing the initiative here. Because anyone who's paying attention is saying this whole thing is not working out the way that they said it would. But here's how Lawrence Tribe of Harvard University put this into words. Play eight. If the evidence that Robert Mueller is collecting forms a kind of compelling case that a overwhelming bipartisan majority of the American people find convincing that this guy is just too dangerous to keep in power, then we do have the emergency power of impeachment available. But it will be available only if we don't use it loosely and and kind of ring the bell every time uh, something looks amiss. You can't use it over and over again against the same president. Right. You 
if you're going to shoot him, you've got to shoot to kill. Now, I know he's not making a threat against the president, this Harvard Law professor, but we all know that if it wasn't President Trump and you went on TV and you said something like that, you'd be in a lot of trouble, right? Like, there'd be big problems. Probably get a visit from the Secret Service, all that stuff, right? We, But with Trump, there's different rules. This is true not just of what you say on TV. This is true with everything. With Trump, the rules are different. This is the world we're operating in now. Uh, lie, cheat, steal, sell your integrity, do whatever you want. As long as you are against Trump, there are people who will come to your defense. They will justify what you're doing. They will have your back. Uh, it's a dispiriting set of circumstances. But on the upside, I want to give you a little positive here. Deep State can't hide that much longer. We're going to get more of this information. We're going to see. And and eventually what will become all too clear is that it's not just that they exaggerated the case of Russia collusion. They really fabricated it knowingly and willfully. That's legal language that you use before you actually start charging people. Just saying. Uh, We'll be right back. Play 18, my friend. My specific concern deals with the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein. I think Mr. Rosenstein is deeply conflicted. I think that in many cases he is playing Jeff Sessions. I think Jeff Sessions has been functionally, uh, you know, set off into a corner at the Justice Department on these critical issues. I don't think that there was a legal or factual basis for his recusal. And I think that it's really hurt the country. Oh, man. You know, I like Attorney General Sessions, but. Think about what would happen if you had if you had somebody who took the approach as attorney general for Trump that, say, Eric Holder took for Obama or Loretta Lynch, for that matter. But Eric Holder, perfect example of this. Eric Holder's number one job in his own mind as the attorney general was to watch Obama's back. Now, you can say, Buck, it should be rule of law. That's not, I, I understand all that. But Eric Holder was Obama's man at the DOJ, right? He, he was his guy on the ground running things and making sure that there were no legal threats to the Obama White House. There were no legal scandals that would, uh, that would come up that would be an issue. And... Trump doesn't have that. And he got Rosenstein and Mueller and a bunch of other so-called Comey, you know, former Republicans who are never Trump Republicans who are running amok and causing real problems for the administration, real problems for the White House. It's not it's just not fair. It's not right. And uh, I, I kind of wish that there was a, a a pit bull, a conservative pit bull at the top of the DOJ who could get involved here. I don't think any of us have any doubt that if you had somebody who, I mean, were they going to pretend that the president's appointee doesn't try to protect the president's interests? I mean, come on, right? We're all adults here. We all know We all know how the game is played, how this goes. Imagine if you had somebody, I don't know, if you had Rudy, Giul- Rudy Giuliani as the attorney general, even. Maybe that wouldn't be great for some other reasons, but wouldn't, after, wouldn't recuse himself because of Russia collusion, that's for sure. And uh, the Rosenstein and and Mueller crowd, 
have a much freer hand than they otherwise would because Jeff Sessions has stepped aside. And that's how you can have them stone uh, stonewalling and, and slow rolling and engaged in all of this obfuscation and bureaucratic, you know, tiptoeing, tiptoeing around and pretending everything has to be so secret because there's not somebody to drop the hammer and say, no, we're going to get the truth. I know they're having this meeting, you know, that they're supposed to get a you know, very top secret meeting together and they'll look at all this stuff. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if you uh, saw DOJ still try to withhold some information. In fact, what you've seen in recent weeks is that Republicans who meet with DOJ have to deal with DOJ-based leaks about the meeting afterwards. So that the narrative can get out there first that's most favorable to the anti-Trump side. I mean, this, folks, it's just all a political food fight. It really is. And one side has just been cheating the whole day. It's a political food fight, and one side's acting like it's, you know, uh, an existential issue for the republic all the time. And that's why they've started the fight. But, man, they really wanted Hillary to win, I guess. I don't know. They, they really can't handle Trumpism at all. Uh, we got to speak on North Korea coming up. Not that much to say about it, but I'll say what needs to be said. And so I think you want to stick around for that. Plus maybe some Iran talk and a follow-up on Starbucks and its public restrooms. That's coming up. So I've got a story for you, team. I just met our new video editor today at the project I'm working on. And do you know how we found this very talented young woman to come and work with us? ZipRecruiter.com. That's right. We use ZipRecruiter. We posted the job online. We went to ZipRecruiter.com, and we were able to find somebody who fit our needs perfectly. She couldn't be happier, and we couldn't be happier. And the whole process was so straightforward and easy. I was using the interface, and I'm not a very tech-savvy guy. I'm also somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of patience for wading through resumes that are no good. But you know what? ZipRecruiter has an algorithm, so you don't waste time. You just get the kind of resumes you want to look at, and then you make the best picks possible. Go check it out for yourself, just like I did. Go to ZipRecruiter.com buck. That's ZipRecruiter.com buck. It's the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter.com buck. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make, make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We're moving along and we'll see what happens. Uh, there are certain conditions that we want and I think we'll get those conditions. And if we don't, we don't have the meeting. And frankly, it has a chance to be a great, great meeting for North Korea and a great meeting for the world. I will say I'm a little disappointed because when Kim Jong-un had the meeting with President Xi in China, the second meeting, the first meeting we knew about, the second meeting, I think there was a little change in attitude from Kim Jong-un. So I don't like that. I don't like that. I will uh, guarantee his safety. Yes, we will guarantee his safety. And we've talked about that from the beginning. Uh, He will be safe. He will be happy. His country will be rich. His country will be hardworking and very prosperous. They're very great people. They're hardworking, great people. Will the summit happen as planned? President Trump, they're talking a lot about this whole North Korea situation, uh, which 
I would note Jimmy Carter uh, came out and said that uh, Trump may, in fact, if he manages to get a great deal with North Korea, he would be worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize, which I would also note to Trump has responded, I think, already and said, you know what, uh, I think that the deal is the most important part. It doesn't really matter if he gets a Nobel Peace Prize. But we're a long way from that. I've been telling you all along, 50-50 shot at best that the meeting even goes well meaning that there's anything that comes out of it that we could uh, care about or, or celebrate. Most likely scenario, North Korea makes demands we refuse. They keep their nukes. Status quo grinds on. That's what's most likely to happen. But if there's somebody who could break us out of this, uh, this inertia, I think it would have to be President Trump. If there's someone who is able to take on the conventional wisdom, flip it on its head, shake it out, and make something happen here, President Trump's as good a as as good a case for this as uh, as anybody I think could be. So we will see. I, I have to just note that the analysis that comes out whenever there's even the most minor setback in advance of these negotiations are just, it's just all, oh, Trump's, you know, he's such a fool, he has no idea. Oh, here we go. Vanity Fair is a piece. Trump is just a moron how the president played himself on North Korea. Now, you might say to me, Buck, Vanity Fair, who cares what they say about anything? And I respond to you, correct. Random team Buck friend that I'm pointing out here. But this gives you a sense of where the the media is on the issue of how this summit with Trump is going to go. Uh, they they would like to see it not happen. They would rather North Korea continue to be a society locked in totalitarianism and violence and poverty and despair than have an opening if that opening for North Korea entailed some kind of uh, proud moment for Trump himself. That's where we are with all this. That's their thinking. So uh, I think that's problematic, and I think that it's worth pointing out that they are uh, rooting against the country, as I have said. Now, what's going to happen with North Korea? We simply don't know. Uh, They could change. You know, Anything we agree to today could be changed tomorrow. Anything that seems like it's forward progress now could be erased in a day. But... They've got to do what they can to set the groundwork. And I think I was on Fox maybe last week, and I said that this is really a three-party really three negotiation. You could say it's a four-party negotiation. It's not Trump and Kim Jong-un. It's not the U.S. and North Korea. It's the United States, North Korea, South Korea, China. Maybe Japan gets in there, too. Those are the parties that are really pushing this thing in a meaningful way that have interests that will affect the outcome and with China specifically, think about how this plays out for them. They really don't want a North Korea that has elections. Think about the message that this would send inside of China. North Korea finally strikes some deal with America, and over the p- process of a, a period of a few years, I don't, you know, I'm just I'm moving this thing forward down the line here, right? Over a period of a few years, 
They have some form of political liberalization. and This is fantasy land stuff. Don't get me wrong. But it's possible. Chinese have to be aware of it. And then you have, you know, 2022, you get your first North Korean election. And there's also newfound prosperity and rights and all the good things that come with rule of law and a liberal society, right? What the heck is the Chinese Communist Party going to say to Chinese citizens at that point in time? How's that going to look for them? Because the whole, oh, yeah, we brought you prosperity, shut up, which is what China... China's Communist Party basically says to the one billion plus people of that country right now, you know, you better like our prosperity or else. And that becomes a less saleable proposition if North Korea all of a sudden goes from being this impoverished backwater to a state that I mean, it's not it's not going to turn into Switzerland overnight, probably ever. But when you look at what happened with South Korea, it's like an economic miracle. Sure, it took uh, a few generations. But South Korea is very advanced, very prosperous, you know, liberal democracy, all that stuff. Same landmass, folks. Same people, same language. What's the difference in North and South Korea? Political ideology, the political system, the state. That's the difference. And if that, so that's already an experiment that the Chinese don't particularly like. They prefer having a North Korea that is dependent on them, that is under their thumb. And that is a bulwark against American ideology, economic ties, everything else. Right? They, they want a buffer. And North Korea is the buffer. So, so their interests and our interests are not quite the same. And, and China's hand in all of this, everyone knows it's very important. I get that. How are the Chinese really going to play this out? I don't think they want to deal with America and North Korea under any circumstances. I really don't. Um, I'm not sure you'd ever find that out in public. You know, I don't think the Chinese leadership will ever say it like that, but China prefers a status quo. This is a country that has a one-child policy, a country that does forced sterilization and abortion. I mean, China's got a very, Chinese government's got a very dark soul. Uh, There's a lot of really bad stuff that's going on in that country in recent decades. It's been papered over with the massive increase in the standard of living for hundreds of millions of people. And we know there are Chinese billionaires now, which must have seemed like crazy talk, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago. But the character of the Chinese state is, uh, it still needs a lot of, a lot of work. And it's something that you can't discount when you're looking at how this is going to play out with Trump and North Korea and these other, other parties that are involved here. The, they do not feel bad. When I say they, I don't mean the Chinese people. I mean the Chinese Communist Party doesn't particularly care about the suffering of North Korean people at all. All they're thinking about is ge- geopolitics, great game strategy stuff, and they do not want a unified Korean peninsula that is pro-American, pro-Western, and liberalized with elections. That becomes a threat to the Chinese party's grip on power. This gets into some pretty scary stuff quickly. So when Trump is saying that there's a second meeting with Xi Jinping and that after that meeting, Kim Jong-un's approach, mentality, his vibe on all this has changed somewhat. It's not surprising. And this is the you know, unknown unknown. What was said behind those closed doors? What does China really want here? 
that plays a huge factor in all this with the negotiations. Trump understands that there's economic incentives to offer here, though. I mean, there, there are ways to sweeten this deal. I think there are ways to get around some of the hurdles. Uh, here's what he said about, actually, some of that economic liberalization. Uh, play clip nine. South Korea, China, and Japan. And I've spoken to all three. One I happen to have right here. They will be willing to help, and I believe invest very, very large sums of money into helping to make North Korea great. Now, people are giving this you know, they're, they're being really hard on the president. They're saying, oh, Trump wants to make North Korea great again. H- how do they expect him to approach negotiations with a foreign power, foreign country? This is a, a similar thing I see whenever it comes to Trump and Putin. Is he just supposed to be insulting all the time? Just supposed to be nasty? Just talk about how, how bad that country is, how terrible they are, you know? That, that doesn't strike me as a, a productive strategy. It doesn't strike me as an effective way to go about any of this. Play clip 10, actually. North Korea has a chance to be a great country, and it can't be a great country under the circumstances that they're living right now. But North Korea has a chance, really, to be a great country, and I think they should seize the opportunity, and we'll soon find out whether or not they want to do that. He doesn't say they have a chance to be a great country next week or next year, but from what we see with South Korea... There's every reason to believe that if the political situation changed in the North, that uh, that they could be on a trajectory to, to prosperity and, and happiness and much better stuff than what they've got right now, that's for sure. But the media is piling on, oh, make, make North Korea great again. You know, Kim Jong-un, the founding father, he's basically George Washington. I mean, you know, this is the stuff you can expect from uh, stuff you can expect from a left-wing media that is really concerned, thinks that Trump is a greater tyrant and a greater threat than Kim Jong-un. That would actually be a fascinating study. I I should probably just walk around K Street here. I should just walk around uh, downtown D.C. and ask people. It would be kind of a fun thing. Who is a bigger threat to world peace? And I wouldn't be asking, like, just anyone on any street in the country. This would be, this is right near the White House where all the shady swamp dealings are going on, or not all of them, but a lot of them. Who do you think is a greater threat to world peace, Trump or Kim Jong-un? A lot of people with high levels of education, high income earners, with political connections. I I wouldn't guarantee it because that might be a bit strong. I would be willing to bet, though, a lot of them would say it's Trump. Trump is a greater threat than Kim Jong-un. And if you ask who's more authoritarian, you might even get some random passers-by on the street who vote for Clinton or Bernie Sanders to say, that Trump's a bigger authoritarian even than Kim Jong-un. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I can't guarantee it, but I wouldn't be surprised. This is what Trump derangement syndrome does. It disconnects people from the reality of what's actually going on in the world around them. Particularly here at home, where it, you, you got to love this. While all this stuff is going on, Russia, collusion, North Korea, and all these different storylines, and they're trying to just bash Trump, bash Trump all the time, saying that he intentionally has his staff put typos in his tweets because, you know, oh, Trump people are so dumb. The whole thing. You see this all the time now. All that's going on. Meanwhile, I just saw a poll that GOP generic ballot at this stage, midterms looming, 
doing better than Democrats. And as you know, the party out of power is supposed to do well in the midterm. Uh, you could see, forget blue wave, you could have a red surge, my friends. And it would make, it would make perfect sense to me why that would be the case. I, I show up to this, this uh, studio. I, sh- I come into the Freedom Hut every night, and I'm just I'm ready to dive into the arguments over policy that Democrats want. And they don't make them. It's not happening. There is no effort right now in the media to do anything other than discredit and destroy Trump as a person and tear down his administration. They're not offering better ideas. They're not offering better deals. They're not offering new deals. They're just saying Trump is the worst. He's the worst. He's the worst. They've learned nothing since 2016. Nothing. I even saw last night, uh, I was just looking to kill some time. For a few minutes, let my brain rest. Turn on Comedy Central, and the uh, Trevor Noah guy comes on at Comedy Central. Just not not a funny guy at all. I mean, I, I wish somebody would give me a job where I make millions of dollars that I'm bad at. That sounds like fun, uh, and that I haven't earned. But you know, in, in the way of being successful and then getting a big job, uh, they did something though on how translators, like UN translators and others, don't like Trump. I'm like, oh, this is great, guys. This is good. You should run this as campaign ads for the midterms. Foreigners who are doing translation at the United Nations or just people in general who are doing translation at the United Nations, they don't like Trump. And you think this is worthy of a comedy segment because they're making fun of what it's like to translate what Trump says in another language. They've learned nothing since 2016. In fact, they've just doubled down on that failure. Uh, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Let's talk Iran. And uh, how that deal is going to go. Coming up. I love canines of all shapes and sizes, but, you know, they can all dig. And once they start getting under your fence, you got a problem. Because if they get outside, now you've got a safety hazard. They can run out in the street. They could just run away. And now you've got to find your pup. Guess what? There is a solution for you. You can stop dogs from digging under the fence with Dig Defense. That's all you need. Dig Defense keeps your furry kids safe. It comes in a bunch of different models and sizes to fit your needs exactly. You can install it with a pair of gloves and a hammer. It solves the problem of dogs going under your fence, and it also prevents predators from coming in to your enclosed yard. Go check it out for yourself. It's available online at Lowe's, Menards, Wayfair, and StopTheDig.com. That's right. You can go online, StopTheDig.com now to solve that problem of pets Digging under your fence and getting out. Dig defense. Senator Schumer, I believe, called it a wet noodle solution. What's the White House's response to that criticism? Like I've said uh, a few times before, Senator Schumer is not somebody this White House is probably ever going to take advice from on how to negotiate or get a good deal on anything, particularly based on his track record. And certainly, uh, I think his weakness when it comes to China. We finally have a president who's actually uh, calling out China on their unfair trade practices and not just calling them out, but actually doing something about it and aggressively pushing forward in negotiations, something that we haven't seen uh, in decades. And so uh, Senator Schumer is probably the last person we would call and ask for on how to make a deal. It's not just Senator Schumer. A lot of, lot of folks, a lot of folks out there seem to think that they're in a position, Democrats, they're in a position to uh, give all kinds of advice 
to Trump and his people about how to approach foreign policy issues, negotiations in general. And the Obama administration was full of people who did not know what the heck they were doing, did not have the experience that they would have needed to be good at their jobs, and was just full of a lot of, lot of happy talk and, and nonsense, a lot of resume puffery without anyone actually being able to deliver the goods. I mean, on foreign policy, the Obama administration was an abject failure. You look at every region of the world where the United States had an active national security interest that was a problem, and the problem got worse while Obama was there. Well, well, while Obama was in office, not while he was actually physically there. Libya, worse. Syria, worse. Iraq, worse. Afghanistan, worse. Russia, worse. China, worse. I mean, I'm. tell me where I'm going. Nigeria, worse. I mean, tell me where I'm going wrong. Venezuela, worse. I mean, I, I could do this all day, right? Mexico, worse. Oh, man, we're having fun. We're really getting into it. But those former Obama administration foreign policy Brahmins are running around acting like they're the ones that should be lecturing the current team about how to get things done. What do they have to point to? The Iran deal? Oh, yeah, keep all your stuff, and we'll take the sanctions off, and we'll just see how stuff goes in a few years. Great deal, Obama team. Everything else they did was a complete disaster. Didn't even get up to bat on Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Got nothing. Absolutely nothing. But they're on the sidelines now. Oh, this is so bad. They have no idea what they're doing. Trump's falling on his face with North Korea. Please. We, we, we don't need the C team telling the A team how to get stuff done. And whether you think that uh, Trump's approach works or not, we at least have to give him a chance to make it work, right? Whether we at least have to see what the results are. This is the guy that everyone said couldn't win the primary, couldn't win the general, no chance of all that stuff. And somehow he did that. I think he's earned the right at this point to have the benefit of the doubt with the way he approaches complicated issues that people say he can't fix because he keeps fixing them. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. The tasks that Iran needs to undertake aren't that difficult. Uh, we asked them to stop firing missiles into Riyadh. This is not, it's not a fantasy to imagine the Iranians making a decision not to fire missiles into another nation and threatening American lives that travel through that airport. Um, it's not a fantasy to ask them to cease engaging in terror. If it was the case that uh, uh, some other country in the Middle East desired to build a nuclear weapon system, we would work to stop them too. Uh, these these are these are a set of simple requirements that the Iranian regime could quite easily comply with, and it would benefit the Iranian Iranian people to an enormous extent. Secretary of State Pompeo, I have to say, is I think one of the uh, bright lights of the administration in terms of well. Knowledge as well as forceful personality strikes me as a very sharp guy. I was very supportive of of the move to put him not just at CIA, but then later on move him to Secretary of Defense. You know, he's saying, look, everyone needs to stop. And we means everyone we're talking about here. Exactly what we were discussing before. Former Obama officials were like, oh, no, the Iran deal. What are we going to do? Everyone needs to stop pretending like 
the Trump admin requests, or you could say demands, because there's there's teeth behind them if they don't do them, that they're unreasonable, that they're unworkable, that there's just some major misstep that's at work here because they're never going to get what they're asking for. Asking Iran not to fire missiles, for example, at, at other countries in the region. Asking Iran not to make our life uh, more difficult in Syria, in Iraq. You know, this is not unreasonable. Because we actually hold the cards here. We can make their economy flourish or we can make their economy anemic. We can not completely shut it down, but certainly put the damper on it. It's their, it's their choice, up to them. Uh, and everything that the U.S. is now saying, everything that the Trump administration is requiring from the Iranian state is completely within the bounds, not just of reason, but of sanity. Right To not demand this stuff is, or, or would be strange, I think. To not insist on ballistic missiles as part of the discussions with Iran over its nuclear program, to me, is just, it's just silly. It really is. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense unless you're desperate for a deal, unless you're taking the Obama administration approach of showing up and saying, I'm not leaving here without a deal, which is not good. It's not good. Not a good approach. Uh, Pompeo, by the way, got some, a little bit of heat from a reporter on this. And uh, this is how, this is how our secretary of state responded. Play 17. The demands, or whatever you want to call them, that you laid out for Iran yesterday, it seems like there's partially because you've laid them all out and partially because of what they are, there's not going to be much room for negotiation, if any, on any of those. Would you agree with that? And because of the way that was put out there, what makes you think that Iran is going to be willing to work with the U.S. on this? If it's sanctions, wouldn't that take a very long time at this point? I don't know which of those demands. Should we allow them to be terrorists? That, is that one we should compromise on? There, there is should no we? How many missiles are they allowed to fire? I mean, I'm, right. the, the, so the, the, the answer is what we, the, benchmark, the, the, the benchmark I set forward yesterday is a very low standard. It's the standard behavior we expect from countries all around the world. Isn't this very Trumpy in its approach? Forget about all the, all the jargon, all the groupthink, all the conventional. This is what the smart people do. Just look at what's going on. What would a normal rational human being think of what Iran is doing, the way that it acts as a state, as a country? The answer would be it acts terribly. Why can't we demand that Iraq, uh, that uh, Iraq, that Iran act like other countries act? We have leverage. We're negotiating. We're just saying, be a normal country. Stop doing these things. How is that strange, Right. But notice the, the, the reporter, I don't know which one that was, but the reporter's inclination here is like, oh my gosh, like they're just shutting down negotiations before they even happen. The Iranians are never going to go for that. Yeah, that's why we put pressure on them. So that over time, they can make a choice. They understand what's at stake. They understand what the ins and outs here are, and they can either suffer the consequences of refusing to play ball the way we want them to, or they can start to slide into the community of nations and be more prosperous. But you see, one of the problems here is that prosperity for the Iranian people would mean the end of the regime. And the regime knows that, right? If the Iranian people were able to really fully integrate into the international community 
economically. The, the malocracy, I don't think, would be able to withstand it. It's all there's already a lot of opposition. There's all, and now we start to get into the regime change discussion, which feels like it's tired and old because people have been having it for thirty years, but or more than that now. But it's only tired and old because it hasn't happened yet, right? It would have been a a completely bizarre discussion to have regime change, that is, in Egypt until about 2011. Then all of a sudden it felt pretty normal to have that discussion. And there wasn't a whole lot of a warning, including for Mubarak himself. So I can see things changing here, uh, and, I, and I certainly hope that they do. But the administration just wants to... I, I really do believe this. I think Pompeo and Trump and... The, member, the members of the foreign policy team, Bolton now as national security advisor, they just want to be judged on the results of the policies that they're putting into place. And they want the leeway, they want the space to engage in negotiations with countries that up to this point have stymied all efforts to get them to do what we want them to do, really. North Korea, Iran, I, mean, I didn't even talk to you about the sham election in Venezuela that just happened, but... Yet another example of the problems of putting social justice and redistribution of wealth above basic human nature, rule of law, and capitalism. If you go back and look at the art in the archives of what reporters were saying and writing around 2010, 2011 about Venezuela, a lot of, yeah, they've got this all figured out from people who still think that they're smart, by the way, and still want to give the Trump administration advice on how to deal with all these other countries I'm talking to you about. Ultimately, how much does this really affect all of us? I, I try to always keep that in mind here with these discussions. It's interesting, but I think the, the discussions that the media has about foreign policy, and I, I'm really curious about how many of you agree with me on this. So this is one of these where I'm asking for any of you who are with me or if you think I'm way off on this one, let me know. Write, write to me on Facebook. But I just feel like the media elites... I am not a part of, although I am in the media. Uh, they love to talk about foreign policy because they think that they get to sound smart when they do it. Most of them don't know a darn thing. They're complete clowns. But it's one of these areas where it doesn't really affect all of us all that much. Very rarely is there a foreign policy challenge or issue that matters your day-to-day life. When I talk to you about health care, immigration, taxes, culture, things like that in this country, that's for all of us, right? That affects all of us. You know, U.S. foreign policy vis-a-vis Iran, it could really affect us. We don't want to go to war there. It could affect global oil markets, but it probably won't. <laughs> it probably won't, and I, I like to be honest about that, too. This is a, much more an area of intellectual interest for a lot of us than it is one that uh, is dealing with imminent problems that all of us face day to day, right? You're not worried about the IRGC kicking in your front door, and neither am I, so... Perhaps that's a good way of putting all this in perspective. Speaking of perspective, the culture, I mentioned that before. Netflix, the Obamas, why is this so important? I'll tell you, coming up. Threats of a boycott because Netflix, the streaming video giant, has uh, signed a deal with Barack and Michelle Obama, a multi-year deal to produce original shows. Let me just first say that this goes to show you a, a few things. One, apparently you don't need any experience in TV to produce TV shows. Or they're just using the Obama brand to push these things, which is also quite possible. 
but this is a reminder to all of us, as I keep saying, culture is essential in the struggle over our political future. And it's all going digital. The, the cable networks are going to be losing market share. The cable providers are going to just turn into internet service providers, basically going to be glorified technology companies that, that give you internet access. And maybe they're going to work very closely with some of the major digital content providers like Hulu and Netflix and you know HBO Go and all the, all the rest of them. But having 500 channels uh, and having a cable company decide what channels are on and what, what channels aren't, I think that's going away. And sooner rather than later, folks, it's not going to be all that long. But this is how the left reestablishes the information dominance that it had for decades, almost unchallenged in the media space, by putting very prominent, their most prominent political voices in the top positions of these digital content companies. It's so easy, right? This is where, this is the, the unseen hand as to how is it that you have so many liberal shows with such a clear left-wing agenda that are getting greenlit time and time again, and they don't do well. It's not even like they're profitable. But it's it's very obvious that there's an effort underway to, to push this progressive content, to just keep pushing it and pushing it. And you see now that it's because they understand this is how the game is played. They understand that when you bring in the Obamas and put them in Netflix and start giving them shows, it draws a whole lot of other social justice types to Netflix. Uh, but it also means that their entire, appar- the apparatus around the Obamas, right? A lot of their senior advisor types and hangers-on and fundraisers and bun- bundlers, they get involved in the entertainment side of things. And this is where they create a space where they think they can win because it's an uneven space. They don't want an, they don't want an even playing field. They want Barack and Michelle Obama and, you know, I don't know, David Axelrod and, uh, you know, just go whoever, Valerie Jarrett and the Clintons, and they want all these Democrat heavyweights to have their hands in the entertainment side of media too because, you know, you might want to make a show about, I don't know, maybe a Secretary of State who's too busy taking big donations from some of the worst countries in the world for her, quote, foundation while she's not really paying attention to a diplomatic outpost in Benghazi, Libya, and, you know, you might want to do a whole show, a scripted series about that. You think that's going to get made at Netflix with the Obamas signed on? I don't think so. This is why we lose on culture, on these... When I say we lose, I don't mean that they've won the argument. I'm just saying this is why they have an advantage in these cultural arenas, because they... It's not that they cheat, they stack the deck. Well, they cheat too. But they're not trying to have a may the best content win attitude. They're trying to control the content so they can control the messaging. That's why the Obama's going there um, is, so, is so noteworthy. We, we we're starting to learn all this, folks. Facebook and Twitter and Netflix. These are left-wing outfits. Left-wing. Dogmatically progressive. And they are suppressing conservative information, messaging, and thought for ideological reasons. They can say they're not, but they are. And that's why when I I see here on Business Insider, 
the Obamas claim it's unlikely that their uh, programs are going to be overtly partisan, uh, but that's not that, that's just not true, right? Even if they don't do a political show, there'll be political decisions about what gets made into a show. Uh, there'll be political decisions about who who gets to be a you know the next executive producer of of a show that captures the imagination of a generation in this country. Who who's in a position to get the budget? from Netflix and other backers to spend tens of millions, maybe even over $100 million on a season of television. Right? Who's going to have that ability? Oh, that's right. The politically connected Democrats who are being seeded into positions of authority in all these digital platforms. I, I wish I could say I have an answer because we've got a long way to go before we can catch up to the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Netflixes. We don't have any conservatives running any of these things. And I don't even want a place that is necessarily right-wing. I would just like some of these digital platforms that are reaching so many people here in this country and around the world, but I'm first and foremost concerned with this country. I just want a place where I know that it's not just completely and utterly stacked against us. I don't, I don't even need a, a playing field in our favor. I just don't want it in their favor. That, that would be nice. That would be a step in the right direction. Uh, you know, you had U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice join the Netflix board of directors. By the way, remember, she took, she took very good care of the Obama legacy. National Security Advisor went on, the, went on the Sunday show, lied about terrorist attack in Benghazi, said it was a protest, you know, but she knew. Democrats take care of their own. One of their more impressive skills or decisions. But they, they have institutionally a very good record. They're kind of like the Lannisters. You know the Lannisters in Game of Thrones? Lannisters always pay their debts. Everybody knows the Lannisters are dirtbags. But if you do something for the Lannisters, you're actually going to get paid. You know, they, they always pay their debts. Very powerful. Democrats pay their debts to... Those who carry water for the party. They really do. They go to bat for them. They protect them. And even if you take hits for the Democrat Party that seem rough at the time, they will make sure you get on the boards of companies, which is one of the greatest gigs in the world. You probably call in once a quarter at a conference call, make two or three hundred grand. And it's this this is the, the best stuff you can get, right? That's a that's another way they win, but that's a, a separate discussion. Don't ignore these uh, left-wingers who are running these organizations and are now trying to merge the digital content culture with our digital left-wing political culture in this country because it is happening. It's happening right now, and it has really profound long-term effects on the direction of politics in this country as a whole. It really, really does. Speaking of left-wing politics and trajectories and what's happening, oh, yeah, you know what's coming up. You know what I've got for you. We're going to follow up on Starbucks with its whole let's turn our restaurants into bus depots of 30 years ago and see how that goes for us, right? A lot of crack dealers and runaways and people evading the law. Right? That's what bus depots were. Uh, let's see what happens with Starbucks. The corporate uh, office has decided they, they need to pay a little more attention to this. We'll get into that and more coming up in a few. 
Don't buy your coffee from a bunch of commies. Don't decide that you're going to be supporting social justice warriors just because they promise you the fanciest frou-frou brew. Get your coffee from a bunch of patriots who love this country, love freedom, and will make sure that you are drinking absolutely delicious coffee in the process. That's right, I'm talking about the veteran-owned and operated Black Rifle Coffee Company. It's what I drink. I, I like their K-Cups personally, but I also, in the summertime, use Black Rifle Coffee for cold brew. It's not hard to do at all. Give it a shot. You can even set up a subscription service. That way, Black Rifle gets delivered to your door each month. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Use the coupon code BUCK15, that's BUCK15. Again, blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Coupon code BUCK15 for 15% off. Join the Coffee or Die revolution with Black Rifle. Team, welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show. It has been quite a ride, hasn't it? Discussed all kinds of things. We cover a lot of ground here on the show. But I want to spend some time on a, on a follow-up, if you will. Something that's a little bit, little bit uh, different from what a lot of other folks are talking about. I'm talking about the Starbucks bathroom and overall cafe usage policy. Now, I gave them a hard time yesterday, as you know. And occasionally, occasionally, I find myself without my K-Cups from Black Rifle or without access to my Black Rifle coffee that I make for cold brew. And I have to walk into a Starbucks location and actually, I know, the coffee's not bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. And check it out. So I'm familiar with how the Starbucks world functions. I know they even have an app now, and they're getting fancier and fancier with their coffee. I think there's even like a super expensive, not the bat guano coffee, which is the most expensive in the world. That's a real thing, by the way. Producer Mike, fact check me on it. People pay extra money to drink steamy bat poop. It's true. Like a lot of money, like $30 a cup for bat poop coffee. They don't call it that, of course. There's some other, there's some other name. You can, uh, you can, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get you the name in a second. Point here is, um, point, wild bat guano coffee. You can actually, get, <laughs> you can actually get that on, on eBay. Oh man. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. There's a, there's a few different ways to, all right, I'm getting off the rails here. I wanted to tell you about this, uh, special coffee that you can drink but it comes from is it civets or bats civet coffee is really expensive anyway starbucks has this big issue with not wanting to be an exclude a, a place where there's any bias to exclude anyone so they had this whole policy this and not only does can anyone use the bathrooms and i would note that's pretty much the policy already most places, if you go in and say you got to use the bathroom, they're going to let you use the bathroom. And even if they don't, guess what? You can wait till somebody goes in the bathroom and then you can just go in when they're done, right? When the door's open. So it's not really a complex problem. But Schultz, the chairman, and I gave him a hard time for this, and I'm certainly not the only one. He was in a position where he felt like he had to take a dramatic action here to make sure it did not look like Starbucks was biased. So what did he do? What did he do? Oh, that's right. He said, well, our new policy will be that you don't have to buy anything and you can sit there as long as you want 
You can use the bathroom. You don't even have to be a customer anymore. Effectively, Starbucks gets turned into a public use facility like the local public library. Now, a lot of you are probably like, wow, Buck, my local public library, if you live in a city, is not a place you want to spend much time and you don't want to be there alone. I'm just saying, you don't know what's going to happen in there. Uh, And that's going to happen with Starbucks. So now they've decided... Because of the backlash, because people like me were mocking them for it, understandably so, because this is a crazy, this is a crazy idea. The whole thing is nuts. They're like, well, now we're going to have some policies. So here they go, okay, uh, you, you can't sleep and you can't do drugs. Those are the old, those are the red lines now for the usage of Starbucks, thousands and thousands and thousands of stores across the country. So short of those two things, It is up to manager discretion of individual locations. Remember, they're not on a franchise model. They are corporate-owned. Starbucks is, if if it's a Starbucks, it's owned by the Starbucks Corporation. So this isn't like, you know, McDonald's, for example, has a policy in place of letting individual franchisees, this is also a way to outsource the decision-making risk here in case there's any bad press. Franchisees can decide, do people get to hang out without paying or do they have to pay? It's up to them. Corporate McDonald's doesn't have to worry about it. But Starbucks has this whole model of, you know, we're also a meeting place and a workspace. And, and, but I mean, the understanding has been you got to at least buy a overpriced 500 calorie, $5.50 frappuccino before you're allowed to sit down for a long time. So, but they're going to make the problem worse though now. They keep digging, right? They're they're getting themselves into a hole, and they won't stop digging. They keep on digging. And what you see happening here is that they're doing this, and now they're trying to come up with a way to put, you know, some stopgap or some some guidelines in place so it doesn't just turn all these thousands of Starbucks locations into a glorified... You ever, I mean, you ever been to a bathroom in a public park? I don't know what it's like where you are. Some of you I know live in like lovely places where there's not that many people and, you know, your parks are really clean, your streets are really nice. Yeah, and I know, I know. Give yourself a pat on the back because I'm a city dweller from big cities run by Democrats, so everything is like filthy that's public. I mean, the public stuff tends to be really gross. But, I mean, I remember even as a kid, if I had to use the restroom in Central Park or something, there weren't very many of them, but you'd go in and there was this smell it smelled kind of like you had walked into a a mausoleum and there were jars of thousand-year-old urine that had been sitting there just marinating for, for millennia. And it's a smell unlike any other I've ever really come across. You're not going to have quite that in the Starbucks bathroom, but it's going to be pretty close if they keep up with this policy. So now they say you can't sleep, you can't do drugs. Guess what this is going to lead to? The first time a manager in, tries to enforce the policy beyond someone sleeping or someone doing drugs, they're going to get called out, right? There's going to be problems. And do you think that this is really going to stop someone who is a vagrant, let's say, from going in there? No, of course not. Because it's going to create a culture of no longer do you have to be a patron, you can just be a transient and use them as a location. I actually think this is going to affect Starbucks's bottom line and like i don't own any starbucks stock i'm not i'm not trying to you know get it going one way or the other but i I think this is going to be a problem for starbucks uh you know they're gonna have to they're gonna have to walk this one back and they've got their what they're really trying to do 
is just keep this whole thing going for another week. You know, keep it, keep themselves on the good side of the social justice warriors. Because once they've had their big diversity training day, then everyone's just going to forget about it. And what really takes hold is the coffee addiction that America has. Because we are addicted to coffee. Don't even get me started on this. I'm addicted to coffee, I think. I mean, certainly to caffeine. Is it really possible that my two favorite things to ingest in the planet just happen to be coffee and chocolate? Red meat, yeah, but there's only so much red meat you can... You know, if I was eating red meat five times a day, some of you are like, you'd be a hero, Buck. Yeah, no, I know, but that's a little bit excessive. It might have something to do with the caffeination that that, uh, is part of the process of drinking coffee and of eating chocolate. I mean, I actually have a chocolate stash here. Uh, I'm currently bouncing around to hotels and Airbnbs and things in D.C. as I find a find more permanent accommodations. And I have to carry a coffee, a chocolate stash with me. Got to carry my black rifle as a stash. And if need be, I got to get coffee on the run. So there's a set there. I just have a feeling that caffeine plays a role in all this. But that's why it's such a successful business model. Uh, That's why. Starbucks has been doing so well. There's no other substance that people, it's completely socially acceptable. And in fact, I think it does assist in productivity for a lot of folks. It certainly does for me. Uh, show up, get ready, drink your coffee every day. Every day. And, and the personalization that goes into it too is amazing. People have really specific, um, really specific needs <laughs> when it comes to their coffee. Also, what is it with the person that will be in the line and just thinks that they're the only one? I'm talking about the line where they have the little stirs and the different milks, which there should really only be one milk. It's called milk, M-I-L-K. It comes from a cow, and it's delicious, and it's good for you. Skim milk, as we know, is just water that's lying about being milk. And then you have almond milk, which is almond juice. It's fine if you want to drink it, but it's a juice. It's not a milk. And then you have soy milk, which is just another, this is just poison. Soy milk probably gives us all, well, gives the gentleman listening to this what is uh, known in coarse language as man boobs. Soy milk is bad, bad, bad. Increases estrogen. You don't want to be drinking soy milk. Um, I have no idea what it does to ladies, but so if you want to drink soy milk, go for it. But for dudes, soy milk is bad. But there's always the guy in the line for the coffee. Or, or, or for the, the, the station where you get the milk and the stirs. By the way, I'm not a big stirrer fan. I've, I've seen funky things happen to those little wooden stirs. Who's just so friggin' slow. And you have to think to yourself, how hard is this, buddy? Is this really, it's, it's 8 a.m. You got a line of 20 people. We're all trying to get coffee before we get into our office or go to work. Is this, your fir- is this really your first rodeo? Like, is this the first time you've had to look for skim or half and half or... You know, no, but someone always decides to go in super slow speed, kind of like the super slow speed that people, when a plane finally lands and they have to pull their luggage down from overhead, all of a sudden it's, I'm going as fast as I can. I mean, they, it's slow motion, slow motion, the whole thing, you know, it's not that hard. You know, where your luggage is pull it down. You know where the milk is? Pour it. Let's go, buddy. Time is money. Speaking of time is money, Starbucks is going to find out letting people sit in your facility all day and not spend any money, it's not good. It's not, it's not going to work out for the bottom line. So anyway, they realize it's a mistake. I'm wondering how they're going to back out of it. 
Um, speaking of mistakes, a millennial who's 30 who doesn't want to move out, what ends up happening, I'll tell you in just a moment. Before I get too deep into this analysis, I got to start here. Uh, Producer Mike and, and Brandon, how old are you allowed to be now and still consider yourself a millennial? I mean, that's, I, I need to know. I would like you both to weigh in. Mike, how old is the oldest millennial allowed to be? I would say, like, it, it's a. have been told it's a gray line because I have friends who are 35, 36 who fall in that range and refuse to be millennials and say it's their choice not to be. See, I'm a, I always say I'm a gray beard millennial because I'm at the absolute upper limit. I'm right there. I'm 36. Right. Uh, Br- Brandon, millennials, how old? See, I kind of understand what Mike is saying. I'm 34. I consider myself a cusper. I've heard that word before. I'm the cusp of Gen X and millennial. A cusper. I, so okay. that's what I tell myself. Yeah. We're, we're kind of rejected by both the millennial and Gen X communities, guys. We're all, we're all roughly the same age here, so it's a little, little sad. But anyway, although... Producer Mike is a little more firmly Gen X than the rest of us, Brandon. We can high-five each other. Uh, Nonetheless, Gen X, Gen Y, all these different things, they come together. And everyone always likes to to pretend that whatever the generation is that they're talking about is, oh, look at them, they're ruining this, or they're the worst, right? But sometimes it does seem like millennials are kind of the worst. There are some things that are specific to the millennial set. And it it has to do with, with liberals... And social justice wars almost always, right? You, you never have some bad story about a millennial who's like, I've been saving my money and like building houses and being a capitalist. It's always something about someone who needs a safe space, doesn't want to go out and actually have to earn a living. And this one we see here in New York State, my home state is, is a perfect example of millennials gone wrong. A judge... This was getting a, this is getting a, attention all over the place. A judge has sided with parents. Check that out, man. Parents in trying to evict their unemployed millennial thirty-year-old son from uh, from their family home. A judge has literally had to weigh in here, folks, and tell a thirty-year-old that he's not allowed to just stay in the parents' home. He's not allowed to continue to refuse to do anything, refuse to pay rent. This is crazy. Until you see a photo of the guy, and I'm telling you, Daily Mail has this up. You've got to check it out because when you hear that a 30-year-old dude refuses his parents' multiple entreaties for him to move out, that he remember, he won't pay rent, he won't do chores, he just wants to stay in his family home and refuses to leave. You're like, who would do such a thing? And then you see a photo and you're like, oh, that guy would do such a thing. Michael Rotondo, that is his name, 30, uh, he looks kind of like Yanni. Not Laurel, but Yanni. He, he looks like a dude who, let's just say, is not exactly crushing it in the ladies' department. And sure enough, he refuses. Refu- he's got super long hair, super long. He's kind of got a Gandalf thing going on, long beard. And he won't leave. And you read these different n- notices, right? You read these different things as parents. They Note after note, you are hereby evicted. Here is $1,100 from us so you can find a place to stay. The parents are desperate to get him out, and he won't leave. I've, I've never heard of such a thing. This may be the most millennial thing ever in some ways. I've never even heard of this before. But it reminds me of how 
we all go through this, well, at least I think I did. I don't know if all of you did. You go through this life cycle where, of course, initially your parents provide for you. They take care of you. They give you a home. Then you get a little older and you're just like, oh, gosh, you know, you, you want your freedom. You want your space. Uh, you know, you want to be able to spread your wings a little bit and not have a, not have their rules and their curfew and everything else. And then I feel like you move out and maybe it's before college, maybe it's after college. And you establish this rhythm where you're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm out on my own. But after a few years, especially if you're like me and you're from a major city and you've had to have roommates and roommates and roommates, you're like, you know, man, it was really nice living at home. It was it was great, you know. Mom's a really good cook, and uh, there's great food in the house. Like, just the notion of having good food to eat in the home that's just there for you. We take that for granted when you're a kid, when you're a teenager. You get into your 20s and 30s, and all of a sudden you're like, I have to grocery shop? That was one of the real moments it hit me, by the way, uh, when I realized that if I did not, in fact, go get toilet paper or paper towel, there wasn't going to be any. You know, this is a, I know it's a part of growing up. It's a part of the maturation process. But, you know, you, you come to a point where you realize, wow, I wish I could go back in time and tell, like, 14-year-old me, hey, buddy, none of this, I, not that I was a rebellious kid, but, you know, none of this, oh, man, I need my freedom and everything else. Like, enjoy it while you can. Because, well, you don't want to be the 30-year-old who literally refuses to leave his parents' home. This guy is... Quite a piece of work. They actually described in the Daily Mail article Failure to Launch Syndrome, which I think was also a completely terrible movie, with, I want to say, Matthew McConaughey and uh, Jennifer Aniston, maybe? Does that sound right? I think that's right. Anyway, Failure to Launch is is a real thing. I didn't know this. Um, Well, it's become a real thing, at least. Now doctors will diagnose somebody with a failure to launch. So you don't want to be that 30-year-old guy, but you want to appreciate the fact that, man, if you have parents, you have family that run a nice home for you, it's comfortable, safe, and warm, and you just get to, like, hang out and go to school, that's a great setup. Can't really appreciate it when you're a kid. But uh, this guy, as I said, Yanni's stunt double that has to leave. You, you got to see You got to see this dude to believe it. It uh, looks like he's he's out. The judge said that uh, he is, in fact, evicted. He, he tried to say that that the law was on his side and that he needs at least a six-month, at least a six-month window before he can be asked to move, which that that's uh, obviously quite a bit excessive. So he's, he's out. He is gone. All right. I, I know I've got, uh, I've got roll call coming up, which I am excited to uh, talk to you about. And I've, I've got a little bit of science before that, though. What do women find attractive and what... Does science say about eating eggs? I have the latest in these hot off the presses stories coming right up. Got good news for you, team. I like to be able to bring you good news. This goes in the, oh, wait, you mean the stuff that you've been told for a long time isn't true file? Eggs are delicious. There are many different ways to eat eggs. As you know, I've been on television one time, showing America how to make eggs great again. But we were, for a long time, in a position where we were told that they cause heart disease, that they are bad for cholesterol, 
and that you should really limit your intake of eggs. And in fact, choose things like cereal and other high-carbohydrate, high-sugar breakfast alternatives. This is the exact opposite of a good idea. But I have some uh, science here to back up what I'm saying. This courtesy of Reuters, the uh, major newswire service. People who eat an egg just about every day have a lower risk of heart attack and stroke than individuals who don't eat eggs at all. This is based on a large study out of China. Uh, China, as Trump says. Uh, you had 40, uh, 461,213 adults in their 50s, part of this survey. Very, very big survey. And on average, they ate a half an egg daily. About 9% of them avoided eggs altogether. 13% ate roughly an egg a day. And... The good news is eating eggs is better for you than not eating eggs. So there you go. There you go, folks. I'm just wondering when they're going to do a huge study of bacon to prove the truth that we already know, and that is that bacon is not only delicious, but in reasonable quantities is good for you. That's one bit of science today. I got another thing on the, on the uh, science side that I wanted to share with you. And that is, uh, what do, this is according to science. I'm, this is not like my opinion, right? Later in the show, sometimes I like to just talk to you about the sciencey stuff out there. You know, what are the people in the lab coats doing all the fancy calculations? What are they coming up with? And here's what we've since found out. Science tells us that what women find most physically attractive is, now I, I'm, going to leave you hanging there for a second because I feel like there are a lot of different things that you might have tossed into the mix. There are a lot of different possibilities. You might think to yourself, you know, uh, a great head of hair, a winning smile, a square set jaw. These are the things that women find attractive. But if you thought all those things, you would in fact be wrong because according to science, the uh, study, this is the Royal Society uh, Journal, Open Science Journal, said that a man's, uh, the length of a man's legs in proportion to the rest of his body is in fact the single most important indicator of whether females will find him attractive. This is what the study wrote, uh, study says, Wrote, get it right, Buck. Women don't care about men's elbows or knees, and male arms are generally sidelined. Their relative, uh, their relative length to the male body had no effect on a woman's pulse. But when it came to legs, hearts would race if they looked to be close to half the male figure's height. A little more. A little less, and the women's eyes began to wander. I don't know how this is possible, folks. I, I got to tell you, I've never consciously, and of course I'm male looking at females, but I've never thought, oh, the ratio of leg to the rest of the body is what I'm really looking for here. So this has to be some subconscious stuff. This has to be the kind of thing that 
you're not aware of, but it's influencing the way you perceive things. I don't know, ladies, you tell me. I guess tall, dark, and handsome is really just tall and proportional to the rest of the body. That's what that's what's supposed to be exciting. I don't know. You look at all the different standards of beauty across society. I, I thought that we had already settled with the science that it has to do with the proportionality of the face. And that's how people determine whether or not they find somebody physically attractive. And there's all this uh, science and research, by the way, about how physical attraction has uh, roots in genetics and passing on. Well, I mean, that all makes sense, right? But, but also with, with health and passing on genetic information that is likely to uh, be good for the next generation. They've done studies that show that men are more attractive to women who, for having a greater level of testosterone, and that that's also, that's where you get the whole square jaw and I think deeper set eyes, and there's a few things about that, that manifest themselves physically that testosterone does to the male body that women tend to find more attractive, even though... It is also the case that men with higher levels of testosterone are more likely to cheat, more likely to get divorced, and more likely to get into a fight. So, ladies, if you're wondering why do you like those bad boys so much, turns out it's uh, got a biochemical origin, and it has to do with what you find attractive versus what will be, uh, what kind of male will be the best mate the best protector and provider for children. So the genetic material component of it is in a state of um, contradiction, so to speak, or is in a state of tension with the behavioral aspects of the greater testosterone. So I know, see, little little nerdy science stuff. I like to work that into the conversation sometimes. Bottom line, eggs are good for you, says science. Bacon's good for you, says Buck. And you want your legs to be roughly in proportion to your body, which sounds like everybody, but that's what they're telling me. All right, roll call up next. Show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for roll call. Oh, man, it was so sad today. I I wanted to try something different than what I always have for lunch around here, which tends to be. I'm not going to lie to you. I found a place that serves bacon and eggs all day. And so I just have bacon and eggs for lunch a lot of the time. But I went into a place today that makes bibimbap. And I'm all excited. It's a Korean dish, usually rice-based. You get some kimchi in there, exciting things, a little little egg on top. I'm thinking I'm going to like this bibimbap. And then I look at their gluten-free menu at this place, and it's bibimbap without the protein. Only protein you can have is an egg, and I already have eggs every day. No Korean barbecue, no chicken, no pork. It was a sad day for me. So that was my disappointment. But you know what makes me excited? Hearing from all of you, my wonderful team, Buck, all of you folks weighing in with your thoughts on all the latest here. All right. With that in mind, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to get in on some of this roll call action. You know, you know how to do it, team. You know how it goes. Also, officialteambuck at gmail.com. One of you pointed out to me with a bit of snark that I would say was in fact necessary, that having a Gmail account for my official nationally syndicated radio show is only slightly cooler than having an AOL account. 
So I will remind us, Mike, John, Buck, to uh, get a a more an, an email commensurate with the level of our show, as in it's actually the company we work for. Uh, but let's get into this. Uh, Jerry writes, "Hey Buck, been jonesing for a history deep dive." And downloaded The Great Siege of Malta by Bruce Allen when I saw it on sale for uh, for $1. Couldn't pass it up at that price. So far, so good. One thing I keep catching myself doing is reading it in Buck's voice. When the war story starts getting intense, the Buck voice comes out. Just need some sound effects to go with it. Also, came across a, a cool podcast episode from No Dumb Questions about siege warfare Check it out sometime. Good info about old-time war tactics. Well, Jerry, I will check that out. That sounds really cool, actually. And uh, thank you for, one, telling me about this book on the Siege of Malta, and two, the reminder that we will, in fact, come back with some roll call. I'm sorry. We're doing roll call right now. Come back with some shield tie very, very soon. TJ, next up here. Buck, your scrutiny of a number of folk pop classic rock bands baffles me slightly, i.e. Bob Dylan, The Beatles, The Stones, and Springsteen. By no means am I offended, but I am intrigued. Anyways, if I could give you a quick list of bands, could you give you, uh, uh, uh-oh, could you give your opinion on each? Just a quick one-word answer will suffice. Wow. TJ, this is actually a fun game. You know, I would invite people... You know, this is kind of like Ask Buck Anything, but it's really, we'll come up with a, with a cooler name for this, but it's like testing the curmudgeonliness here as to see what I like and don't like. Um, I, okay, so we can do this with one word. Um, Aerosmith, epic. ACDC, amazing. Bad Company, I don't know. Leonard Skinnerd, couple great songs. I don't really have just one word for that one. Queen, some good songs. Ted Nugent, interesting fellow. 38 Special, I don't even know what band that is. I know that that's what people refer to a type of revolver as. Anyway, TJ writes, if you enjoy playing this game, I'll come up with another list in a few days. Well, TJ, sounds good. Come up with another list. We do TV shows. I, I like this game, though. The the test bucks uh, critical skills here, or skills as a critic. Daniel. Anyway, Shield's high, TJ. Daniel's up next. He writes, Buck is a child of the 90s. I pretty much have the first 10 years of The Simpsons memorized. That being said, the cryptic references to your coming announcement reminds me of the Gabo is coming commercials that were used to drum up anticipation for an audience to compete with Krusty. Sorry for the esoteric uh, esoteric reference. Daniel, I, I'm familiar with Krusty the Clown, and, and I think that, uh, uh, gosh, I'm, I was going to say Frazier Crane, but his actual name is Kelsey Grammer, uh, is fantastic in that role. Uh, when he, Right, because isn't he the actual voice of Krusty? Krusty's like, hi, boys, you know. Or no, actually, I sound like Mo the bartender there. Hey, what are you doing, Homer? That was actually pretty good off the top of my head. But uh, I don't know about Gabo is coming, so I'll have to check it out. But thank you very much for writing. Monica, up next. You are so 
uh, you are so correct on gut feelings about people. Bad apartment story. We moved everything we owned to Okinawa. I had a bad feeling about the landlord. No lease. Move was last minute. Paid rent for a few months and got a postcard in the mail from the actual owner addressed to the guy I was paying rent to saying he hadn't paid rent for three months. Had to move again. Shields high from Team Buck, Okinawa. Yeah, Monica, I've made some of the mistakes with apartments, but, you know, it's so much easier as you go on in life when you have more experience. Maybe you even have a little more financial resources at your disposal. Because when I was looking for apartments in New York and D.C., I didn't have any money. And when you don't have any money, you... And when I, when I say I don't have any money, I'm not talking about, like, Thurston Howell the third money. Oh, yes, I'm smacking around butlers with $100 bills. No, I mean, you know, my first and last month rent to move into an apartment was like all the money I had in the world. So if I got it wrong, I didn't have any money. Uh, that makes it a bit, a bit harder. That raises the stakes a little bit. But, yeah, that gut instinct about... It's not just about the management company, the landlord, or the owner. About the place, too. When you walk into a place, you get a feeling about it. And you don't want to ignore that feeling. You, you really should. I mean, look, if there's some specific reason why it you know, has soured you on a place that isn't relevant, you know, if you walk in and there's like another couple looking at the apartment or something or the house, well, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad place. It might actually mean it's a great place. You just need to get get a perspective on it. Anyway, I, I don't ignore that gut feeling. You know, my dad always says, don't ignore your instincts. And that's true. It doesn't mean obey your instincts all the time. It just means don't ignore them. Be aware of them. Be aware of the feeling you're getting. Uh, next up here, William, who writes, uh, you just read one of my messages. Sometimes it's hard to explain what I'm trying to say. I'm not Buck Sexton. Thanks for reading my posts. Love you, man. Shields high. Well, William, love you too, buddy. Thanks for the. Uh, thanks for always writing in. Oh, he writes another message, by the way. I always listen to Joe Rogan. He's had his head beat in on a lot and done a lot of drugs. Somehow he's still able to get his point across. Yeah, I got to check out these Rogan podcasts. A few of you have told me that, uh, that you really like the work he's doing with podcasting and, and that I should check it out, and also that I should be a guest on this podcast. I'd love to, but I don't have any contact with Joe, so I'll have to just wait. Sandy writes, Oh, Buck, spraying all over the place like an elephant? Did you really mean to say that? Oh, my gosh. Every time I think of that, it makes me crack up again. I love that you're so comfortable with all your fans. It makes me feel like we're one big family. I'm still laughing. Love, prayers, and great appreciation from Sandy. Well, Sandy, thank you so much. I can neither confirm nor deny whether the elephant comment was meant as stated or just was it, was it happenstance funny or intended to be funny. Neither confirm nor deny right now. I'm just going to leave it out there. Uh, but uh, speaking of leaving it out there, that's going to be it for the Freedom Hut today. Uh, by, by the way, I'm going to have to get you all ready for the Freedom Hut with Buck Sexton podcast, which is launching the first week of June. We are locked and loaded on it, my friends. It's going to be kind of like a chill-out session. Be on Wednesdays when we're, we're planning to drop them each Wednesday, so I'll be telling you more about it. It's also going to be the home of Commie Bear. For those of you who've been asking, where's Commie Bear? The podcast. That's where you're going to have Commie Bear. That's the way it's going to go. 
uh, as well as some other characters that might make appearances occasionally on this show, but it's going to be mostly the Freedom Hut that you're hearing some of the wackier stuff that I, that I do here on the show. Or more insightful, depends on how you look at it. Appreciate you being with me, team, as always, and looking forward to hanging out tomorrow and every day this week. Have a fantastic rest of your evening or rest of your day, depending on when you're listening. Until next time, team. Shields high.